So Money episode 972, Nika Faison, executive producer of WCVB Boston's Chronicle Local News Magazine. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. I am a black girl and I'm also a black dark-skinned girl, right? I was on air for most of my career. I was talking to an agent and he's like, he's actually the second agent to make this kind of a comment, but this is why it sticks out. He said, you're good on camera. I like your stuff but your skin is so dark. And, and he didn't say it like, I think he even said you're attractive, but your skin, you know what I mean? Like there was a qualifier and it was the second time someone had said something like that to me, um, an agent or a hiring manager. And I was just like, they're not saying it's bad, but they may as well be saying it's bad. Welcome to So Money, everybody. Our guest today is Neka Faison, who has an impressive history of career achievements in the world of journalism. She's an Ivy League graduate, anchor and reporter named 40 Under 40 by Boston Business Journal, and most recently named executive producer of Boston's Chronicle Local News Magazine. Neka and I have some parallel experiences, both having gone to the Columbia School of Journalism and having worked for Time Warner Cable News. And as she describes, she's had some interesting experiences growing up in the news industry, to say the least. It's nice to reconnect and learning now that she's a mother of two and also hosting her own podcast. Here's the lovely Neka Faison. Neka Faison, welcome to So Money, my friend. Oh, thanks, girl. This is a long time coming. We connected now, gosh, uh, 10, 12 years ago, I came First of to- all, I, I, don't, I don't want to admit that I'm that old, but <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm older than it's you, a- so. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I, I mean, we're, we're in the same range, we're, but- we're, um, Yeah, we're both elder millennials, we've decided. Elder, yes, elder, I love that term, elder millennials. So yes, I've, as I'm an elder, um, we met in the fall, I, I believe it was the fall of 2005, and I was in my first semester, are they semesters, right, semester- at Columbia Journalism School, where Farnoosh also went. And she came back, you know, as a successful alumna, speaking to us students about what could be. And I remember our professor was so impressed with Farnoosh. And she kept saying, look at Farnoosh. She shoots her own video. She does this. She does that. You all need to do what she's doing. If you're like her, you'll be good in this business. So I was like, okay, got to be like Farnoosh. You took notes. You took notes. (laughs) Well, that, the, you know, that's very kind to say, but to, to throw this back at you, I mean, you really are such a rising star. And from that opportunity, you really leveraged so much. I mean, you went to Columbia and then you, I think you came to New York one where I was at and probably learned yep. about all of the various ways to produce. I mean, the one thing I, I will say about working for um, a place like New York one, you get to do all of it. You get to shoot, you get to edit, you get to produce, you get to host if you want. Eventually, it's really, for me, it was like grad school 2.0. Right. And so from there, you went to Harvard and this was later in your career, but now you're the executive producer of WCVB Boston's Chronicle, which is the local news magazine. P.S. I'm from Massachusetts. I watched Chronicle growing up. 
This is a this is yes. a nice little homecoming, I have to say. First of all, yes. Big ups to Massachusetts. I am a I am not a native, but I, I live here now. Um, I bought a house, I'm stuck here. So yeah, no, this is I first of all, I was so excited to find out that you were from Massachusetts. I had no idea. Partly, yeah. I was born in Worcester, Worcester. Um Worcester. And- yeah, I feel like it was such a great childhood. The state of Massachusetts is is really, um, I mean, it's it's unique in its way. I mean, I was definitely like the only Farnoosh <laughs> growing up. Girl, I girl, I was the only Naka in the Philadelphia suburbs. So yeah, I feel your pain. And but I think that's what makes us want to become journalists. Like we be, we <laughs> we are raised with so many of our own interesting stories. And I think as an outsider, sometimes you have to just be really observant and you pick right. up on things. And I think um, th- you, I just have this curiosity for the world. And I think that is why what's partly what drove me to journalism. What drives oh, you? What drives you? Because you have a Really, I mean, you're now 40 under 40 in the Boston area, uh, which is phenomenal. And, and f- I mean, obviously, you're Emmy nominated, you're top in the media. But w- I have to ask you, what has kept you going? A lot of people phase out, you know, they like mm-hmm. have a few of those local TV jobs like you did. And they're like, I got to I got to get a PR job or something. This is not right. paying the bills. Right. Well, that's, you know, I think one of the reasons why I was just preparing to talk to you. I was talking to one of my colleagues about this because she's a, in her 20s starting out and asking a lot of questions. And I try to be so open with her about the business because people don't know reporters start off making no money. I think it was a surprise to my parents too when I told them, um, I'm, and I'm just going to, I'm not shy about saying this. I made 22.5 my first job as a reporter in Syracuse, actually a sister station of New York One. So thank God for that internship. Because then I, uh, New York One is owned by, or was owned by Time Warner Cable at the time. And then I went to the Time Warner Cable station in Syracuse, um, which is good. So be good during your, your uh, internships because then, you Because know. then you too will make a job that pays nothing. <laughs> you too can get a job that pays $22,000 a year. But my parents were like, we just spent 60 grand sending you to Columbia and you're going to make $22,000. And I kept saying, it'll be worth it. Don't worry. Don't worry. And Farnoosh is right. People phase out because you go from 22, then you're making 35 at the next job and, and you're working. And it's a a hard job. Yeah. You, you work Christmas. Yes. Yes. You work. I think the first year I worked Thanksgiving, I started October 10th, 2006 in Syracuse. I worked Thanksgiving. I worked, you know, I just got there. So I worked Thanksgiving. I worked Christmas. I worked New Year's. So yeah, you work a lot. I was shooting my own video, driving all over the place. I didn't know how to drive in snow. I had to learn how to drive in snow. It snows a lot up there. Yeah. So how did I not phase out? I think it's what you said about this natural curiosity. My husband always makes fun of me. He says, I, people are on an interview every time they meet me. Yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> Tell me about your life and where were you born and, and what, and why did you become a who, what, teacher? where, when, you know, why, huh? Yeah, I know. And he, and he's like, okay, you know, they're like, they're not on TV. So yeah, relax. Um, I think it's just that it's, and you're probably the same way. It's just a natural curiosity about people. I'm just, I love to talk. I love fascinated by people. And, um, you know, I just grew up also in a household of news junkies. So my parents, they're not in television, but they watch, they always watch the local news and then the national news. And, um, it was just habit in my family. So, yeah. Yeah. We were big 60 minutes fans and yeah, 
local news, although in the 80s, local news was pretty scary. It still is, you know? Yeah, it was very (laughs) scary. I remember even telling my parents at some point, why is the news always scary? It was pretty scary when when you were a kid. It shaped my upbringing because my mother didn't quite speak English and she was new to the country and she's watching, you know, local five o'clock news with child abduction was a big theme uh, from like 1980 to 1991. And so as a result, I was never left out of the house. I was never allowed out of the house. (laughs) It sounds like me. I the first generation American thing, but my parents were, they didn't understand sleepovers. Oh, no, no, no. Why would you go somewhere else you can sleep here. Yeah, you're going to get kidnapped in the middle of the night because that's what happened to the America's Most Wanted host's daughter, remember? Right, and remember the milk cartons when in the 80s and stuff with all the kids? That, that was, you know, yeah, it was a scary time, especially if you're new, new to the country. So, yeah. So I guess all this to say that the media influences lives and now you are in a position, in a role, NACA, where you are shaping the news. And most recently, I think it was just, you know, Last night. Last night. Right? Your, yeah, your program did a whole series on money and millennials, which was great timing. Yes. Because here we are now talking about money. So tell me about why you wanted to address this issue. I mean, it's nothing new, right? That millennials are saddled with debt. They're called mm-hmm. the, the first generation that is going to um, not accumulate as much of a net worth as their parents, which is pretty depressing. Um, what, what kind of, what, what was the angle that you wanted to, um, present in this, in this series Mm -hmm. that you think that there are some maybe lesser known facts about this generation as it involves their money? Yeah. So I'll say, um, other than just being a fan of yours, I'm just naturally, um, I've always been interested in money. I don't know if it's because I never had it, but I've just probably been, uh, (laughs) I think that, I think that's it because one of my colleagues said, because I was nervous about this interview, and they're like, well, you're always talking about money. It's kind of true. So um, the the story, actually, the show idea and part of my role is helping to generate story ideas. And, you know, as an elder millennial like yourself, I thought that we hear the stories that you talked about, uh, the student loans, we've done that, um, worse off than their parents. We've talked about that. And that came up in the show. But one thing I also wanted to highlight are the millennials like my brother who is committed to retiring early, you know, he's part of like the fire, the fire movement, um, financial independence, retire early. And then, uh, and I think you had someone else, I heard someone on your podcast a few episodes ago talking about that too. And then, um, the other thing I, so there was this movement of frugality to one, right. Um, another thing I don't think we talk about enough is childcare. And I am not shy about talking about how much childcare costs. And I have my own theories about why it seems we're just now starting to care about the cost of childcare. Um, but that's something else, you know, millennials are in their thirties, right? So that's, um, a good portion of them are in their thirties. So that's something I thought was important to address. And then also, um, there are millennials who are, especially first generation like myself who are helping their parents or, and it's expected, right? So there's this image of the millennial, siphoning money off of their parents who are about to retire, right? I mean, that's the the typical narrative, but we forget that there are so many millennials. Um, I don't know what the percentages are, but there are some who are ha- who have to help their parents. I think it's more than 50%. We've had episodes uh, dedicated oh, wow. to this. Yeah, it's, it's 
pretty shocking because you're right with the caricature of the millennial is you know this deadbeat 25 year old Mm -hmm. that's like eating potato (laughs) chips in the basement playing video games I mean I'm not saying that's not some of them but to your point you know every generation grows up and right for a while it was all about Gen X and now Gen X is like hey uh, we're still here can we please get some advice because we're struggling with you know sending right. our kids to college and retiring right and we're so focused on Millennials because it's sort of the generation du jour um and it's you know it's funded to rip up, up, rip apart, you know, like, I guess it's, I'm, I mean, it's not fun for me, but like, it's, <laughs> it's, it's click worthy, you know, to read articles about, you know, these sorts of trends. Um, but I think that we need to start talking about more of the sophisticated things that are happening and, and some of the bright spots, like it's great that they want right. to retire early and it's, it's humbling that they are in a position to like have to support their parents um, and and how do they navigate all of that? So childcare, let's talk about that because that's a lot of yes, my listeners, a lot of moms, yes, let's dads. Talk. Let's talk. So what what's your philosophy on on childcare? What's your theory? Okay, so I agree with you. I used you. I think you've said on several. See, I listen to a lot, so I can't remember which episode it was, but I've heard you say before that you don't. It's an area you can't skimp on, right? It's just kind of like. It's non-negotiable, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. And I, and, and right. And as a working parent, two working parents with two demanding jobs, we, at first, we both said, oh my God, childcare is so expensive. How can we do this as cheaply as possible and still work full time? So luckily my mother-in-law was able to watch, we had a nanny to start actually for the first, when I went back to work for the first four months, I think. And then my mother-in-law would come one day a week and then we switched to daycare and my mother-in-law would still come. Um, I would say for the last two years, so since having two kids, they've both been in daycare full time. In addition to that, we also, and Boston, I think is one of the most expensive cities, Uh, obviously not New York, but it's New York, San Francisco, Boston for childcare. And in Massachusetts, it costs more to send an infant to daycare than a freshman to the University of Massachusetts. Okay. So that, yes. And this is something that we did a story on it, on our news. Um, and people are, I tell people that all the time and people are shocked and yeah, my, and I am not shy to say this. It costs $2,000 a month just for my son to go to daycare. And that's cheap for here. Not cheap, but it's, it's more in the middle because I've called daycares that were 2,500 a month. I've called some that were $3,000 a month for one kid. Okay. So this is why, this is one of my soapbox issues because my theory that my, the reason I think people don't talk about this, and this is probably just an amalgamation of things I've heard on your podcast and others, but I think people still believe that when a woman works, it's a selfish act. Do you know what I mean? Like we don't need to work that we're doing this for our own self-fulfillment. And yeah, some of us are, I like my job. You like your, you like working. Thank God you like your job. I, I mean, I hope I, I should do. hope no, that anyone who works enjoys going to their job. Yeah. Right. I, I, and that, but I think people think it's purely selfish, but look, my husband and I both have student loans. My husband is the first in his, one of two people in his family to buy a house. So this, he's not coming. You know what I mean? Like we're both, I'm first generation American. So we're not coming with this, um, 
you know, with a family that we can fall back on, if that makes sense. I mean, if our, if we needed help, of course, but we both need to work is what I'm getting at. And it's not a choice of mine. It's a necessity. And I looked into working part-time when I was going to have my son and it just, it didn't work. And, um, I would have lost benefits and, you know, all of these things that I was literally for a while working like many other women to keep my foot in the professional world. So anyway, that's yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, I feel like for me, it's very simple. Um, even though it's very complex, I feel like you have to simplify it, right? Because otherwise you just be running yourself in circles the whole time and you're never going to be happy with your decision. I mean, at the end of the day, um, you have to figure out what is, what you, what do you value, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, you have to make hard choices and I value my children being taken care of by, you know, the best people possible, whether that's me, my husband, my family, or, you know, a really dedicated, uh, full-time care person. And in this case, mm-hmm. we have a nanny. I also value my career and my husband's career. I also value my financial security, my husband's financial security and our family's financial security. Notice those are three very different Amen. things. Those are three different no, things. Yep. And yep. so that all basically trickles down to the net effect, which is I have to keep working and not really because I, I have to, but fortunately I also love my job. Like that's the goal, right? Is that you mm-hmm. don't feel like you're being forced into the workforce every day. My mother, on the other hand, when she had my brother, um, had to send him to daycare, she would do it in tears every morning um, because it wasn't quality daycare and she didn't love her job. Aww. Well, that's like, you're, it's a recipe yeah. for disaster. It, you know, there the solution is not you should quit your job and raise your son. It's you need to find a better path where you can continue to make money on your terms in a happy way and that you're, you feel like your child is getting the right kind of care. And maybe that does mean yeah. part-timing it for a while while you transition. But I feel we're so quick to say, oh, well, you know what? I'm quitting. Uh, this is not worth it. My child's more important than my career, which of course it he or she is, but you're not thinking long-term. Because to your point, for every minute that you're out of the workforce, it's not just the salary you're forfeiting, it's the benefits, it's the ability to invest in your retirement plan, get social security. Right. And right. we're living longer than men. A lot of us end up divorced or widowed. Right. I mean, we have to be realistic about being financially secure. Sure, take time off, take a year off, take two years off, but have a plan for how you're going to get back in the workforce and make money because you need it. First of all, I'm like snapping, snapping right now because that's And I'm going to get a lot of hate mail. I'm going to get some really upset parents saying like, Barnoosh thinks that stay-at-home parents are (laughs) terrible people. No, I don't. I just think that I just want you to be secure. That's all I'm saying. No, Farnoosh, I'm with you. I've seen you write on social, you know, a man is not a plan. I, I, and look, maybe I'll get hate mail too, but I'm, I'm with you. My mom was married for more than 30 years and found herself divorced. And my dad was the breadwinner by far. And lo- she worked though, not when I was super young, but um, I would say maybe like elementary school. And she was very good about savings. She was the first person to tell me to start a 401k when I was making $22,000 a year. She's always been very smart about her money. And also she takes care of her family abroad. So I, I do think that 
And everybody's choice is a choice. And just because you work outside the home, yes, the work at home is work. Stay at home moms and stay at home dads too. Cause I met a stay at home dad recently. So yeah, you know, it's all work. But, um, the other thing I was going to tell you is I was char- starting to be cheap about childcare and it took me maybe about a year or so, maybe till I had my second child when I realized that I can't skimp on that expense. Um, it's a lot and I know I complain about it a lot, but I think that's a policy thing that needs to happen, but we're looking into getting an au pair. Actually, I'm probably, I'm talking, I've talked to several online, but now that my duties are increasing, my husband's duties are increasing. Our kids need to be picked up at a certain time or else you get charged. So we're looking into an au pair and we actually will probably get one before the end of the year. I have a few people that we're interviewing. So, you know, we're, it's not ideal. Do we want someone to live in our house? Not really, but it's mutually beneficial, right? They get a cultural exchange experience, the experience of living in America, and we get reliable childcare. So it's kind of, you have That's to That's much more affordable, that. right? Than like- Right, getting, it is. Yeah, it is. People often think it that is. an au pair sounds super fancy. It's actually a lot more affordable than full-time t- daycare. Um, it is. Or like yep. getting a part-time or even full-time nanny. Um, you know, I think because you come from the background of having invested in yourself, you went to graduate school, you went to college, then you went to graduate school, and then you had these jobs that, you know, didn't pay much in the beginning, but you saw- how this could pay off. You believe in the payoff. And I, I, want, do. I want more people to trust the payoff. You know, we're so quick to pay for college and grad school and all these like other things, but why not invest in childcare? Think of it as an investment in your child's yes. safety and security and nurturing and also your ability and your family's ability to build career momentum and financial momentum. Yes. And it it'll also for your marriage, even if you have a husband who is very helpful, and my husband is very helpful. I know a lot of, I have a lot of friends who's, you know, it's, it's maybe it's not 50, 50, but it's 60, 40. Right. But he and I, we can't say his job is more important than my job or vice versa. We're both trying our best to build something for our family and having an au pair, we believe hopefully (laughs) will help with some of the additional stress. And it's like you said, if we're already spending more than $3,000 a month on childcare. And we were thinking about hiring a nanny for, you know, the 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. time. And it just was, it's like, this is too much. We have to, you know, we have to find a better way. So that's why we're thinking outside the box. Well, good for you guys. I think that it sounds like you're, you know, you're very thoughtful. You're trying to be strategic. You're realistic. And look, your careers are blossoming. Congratulations, Naka. High five. Thanks, girl. Virtual high five. I'm so five. proud of you. And I don't, I mean that in the yeah. most respectful way. I hate when sometimes people say like, I'm proud of you because it sounds like oh, I'm patting you on your head. But I really, um, <laughs> girl, I, I really girl, feel like I you're, was a kid when you're we a met. force. I was like, I was literally a child when we met. I still had, I had braces that you year in grad school as an adult. Yeah. Adult braces. You know, I wanted oh, adult braces. Yeah. So even worse. Right. So I feel like I was a, somewhat, I'm a woman now. I feel like I was a child. Yeah. <laughs> and think about That's your, it. your children. You're such a role model for them. They're seeing you happy. And that's the, that's the bottom line, right? Just do what yes. makes you happy. Yes. We, and I think that's important. You know what my daughter said, um, I think it was last night or some, you know, a couple days ago, she said, I want to work like you, or I want to go to work like you. 
And then she said she wanted to be a doctor. I'm like, well, I'm not, but I get what she was. <laughs> First of all, thank God she wants to be a doctor. But because um, this, yeah, I'm, I'm just teasing, but this job, this industry can be rough. But I liked that she said she wants to go to work. And in her mind, mommy's work. It doesn't matter. Yes, there are mommies who don't work outside the home and that's fine. But in her, this is the example I'm setting for her. So I love it. I love it. Well, um, let's talk about some of the other um, financial interests that you have and maybe some of the um, lessons learned along the way, you know, because you going back, I can't stop thinking about, you know, how you made not just one job that paid you 20 something thousand dollars, but like multiple jobs as a, you know, local TV reporter. P.S. I know friends who worked in um, Syracuse or maybe it was Binghamton or New York where they had to also bartend to be also working at the news station. Like it's not unusual to be a TV reporter and also (laughs) go be a waitress at like the Olive Garden. It's so true. So they technically tell you, they tell you not to get a second job, but everyone kind of does. And especially now that there's so many boutique fitness classes, I know a lot of reporters who are fitness instructors on the side, who do real estate on the side. I actually, for a brief time in Syracuse, I was um, working at Ann Taylor Loft and I, I had, I worked weekends and I had Mondays and Tuesdays off and I would work one week, one of my quote unquote weekend days and I would work for like 12 hours and you might think, oh, why would you, maybe I got like a hundred dollars for all of that. But when you're making no money, that's a lot of money. So yeah, I would, I would do that. I'm, I've, I've always been a hustler. So, and that wasn't even just to have fun. That was just like, I think I had to start paying my student loans or something. What's any advice you can give for someone who wants to come up through the ranks in journalism, because I feel like when we were in school and I know we're just a few years apart, um, the advice was just like, go to the local stations, go to the local paper and work your way up to the big cities. That's the only way you're going to be able to make more money. There's not really a lot of conversations around how to make your own money as a freelancer, as an entrepreneur, to really take the reins in the world of media. And so I'm just curious, any advice you'd have for a bright-eyed journalism star, rising star now. Yeah, I think Farnoosh is so right. When we were coming up, and it's funny because I graduated in 06, and I feel like everything changed as soon as I entered the industry. The iPhone came out, you know, Twitter started. So, you know, the industry has changed in such a short amount of time. But the advice that I give to some of my employees who are younger and say, I want to be a reporter, I want to do this. I don't tell them to go to small markets. I'm like, start a YouTube channel, start a podcast, live, you know, record video on your podcast or do some sort of, if you have a niche, right? If you're into politics, do something related to politics on YouTube or on a podcast or something, share it on social media, get it out there. Now you no longer need an entity like, you know, the small station in Binghamton or Syracuse to be how you get out there. So if I were coming up today, I wouldn't even go to a small market. I'd have some job to pay the bills and then I would work on my hustle. Um, What were those, what were um, some of the craziest stories that you worked on in your early days? (laughs) We all all have a few. Like I have the one where I was going to do a story about the, um, the, the employees of Dwayne Reed, which is one of New York City's biggest 
pharmacy yep. chains. At the time, Dwayne Reed had the most civil lawsuits uh, by from ex-workers against it. And so I was going to do a whole like series of interviews with former Dwayne Reed employees. A lot of them lived in projects in very, very dangerous neighborhoods. And mm-hmm. I didn't know left from right when I got here. And so I would just say, okay, I'm going to go to, you know, Bedford-Stuyvesant, apartment three. And, and they'd be like, alone? Like with all this gear? Like where are you going? And so I'd have to get escorted. This was yep. back in 2003 to go do a story in some parts of New York. That was crazy. But anyway. Yeah. And now, and now neither of us could even afford bed right now, right? So... Um, it's crazy. The real estate there or no, what was the neighborhood? I did a story in grad school in crown Heights. And then I went back to that neighborhood recently and everything was like crazy expensive. Yeah. So anyway, crazy stories. Um, I lived in upstate New York in Syracuse. I was covering a story. I guess a guy, you know, you do a lot of local news, car crashes, fires, um, you know, drugs, that kind of thing. So this guy was growing marijuana in his house or something in some really uh, very rural town. So they sent me, this black girl, you know, with my camera and tripod to go to this guy's house. And I'm like, all right, whatever. And they said, this is, you know, just get some video of the house. You can try to see if he'll talk or neighbors or something. Neighbors will talk. I said, okay, park there, get to his house. And you know, first thing you get to a scene, you have to shoot, shoot the scene. So I get out and I'm shooting the house and he comes out and he's yelling at me. And I said, well, sir, you know, people are like, you can't be here. And I'm like, I'm on public property, sir. I can stand here, blah, blah, blah. And I said, I'll be gone in a few minutes. And then he was so mad. He sent his pit bull out after me (laughs) and I don't know. Yes. And I don't know how quickly. I just like threw the camera and the tripod in the car and jumped in. I called my assignment desk and I was like, okay, he sent his dog out after me. So I got video. I'm leaving. They're like, okay. Um, yeah. So I think I've had a few <laughs> stories like that actually. Um, but that's, that's probably the craziest. Yeah. That's pretty crazy. Uh, that's, that's, that's yeah. that is really startled. I mean, I, I mean, Sorry yeah, that happened that's, to you. Yeah, that's pretty scary. In your climb in the world of media um, as a female, um, has it really been an issue? Do you have anything interesting to say about that? I don't want to assume that you've had any problems. No, but- no, but you're. I mean, because you've worked in the, you work in the industry, so you know. Um, you know, I'm I am a black girl, and I'm also a black dark skinned girl, right? So I was on air for most of my career. Actually, it's probably about fifty fifty right now. No, most of my career. And, um, I remember, so I was in Syracuse, then I was in Providence as a reporter and anchor. And then I went to, uh, New Haven, Connecticut. So I always saw myself in New York or Philly where I'm from. And then I was told New Haven would be a good place. And I think I was trying to jump from New Haven somewhere. And I was talking to an agent and he's like, he's actually the second agent to say, to make this kind of a comment but this is why it sticks out. He said, you're good on camera. I like your stuff, but your skin is so dark. And, and he didn't say it like, I think he even said you're attractive, but your skin, you know what I mean? Like there was a qualifier and it was the second time someone had said something like that to me, um, an agent or a hiring manager. And I was just like, they're not saying it's bad, but they may as well be saying it's bad. You know what I mean? 
So, oh, I had someone once say I didn't have a commercial look. There's so many uh, discriminatory things people say that they try to sh- mask by making it sound like it's not about like it's not personal. Yeah, or <laughs> yeah. That, that it's not you, it's the industry. Like, how did you navigate that? Oh, how did I, how did I handle I don't even know because I think it's so funny because I always think, oh, I should have said this. I should, but I think in the moment you're so shocked that you're like, did he just say that to me? And then I, I didn't end up working with him. So that's, I guess that's kind of what I said to him. And yeah. And that, or you get told we already have someone with your look, like that kind of a comment, you know, stations try to cast one is enough. One is, yeah, it's like, oh, we already have the young black girl, so we need the young black guy now or the, you know, older white lady or whatever. You know, it's like, it's, why can't there be two? If two people are good, it doesn't matter what they look like. Um, Yeah, so I I think anybody who has said that to me, I've never worked for, I've never worked with because you don't want to go somewhere for a job unless they're enthusiastic about you. Right. So if this, if, if they, if, if you're feeling like they're making some sort of a concession for you, you don't want to be there. So, or work with that person. I mean, it's such an interesting field, right? Because it's visual. It's, it is, it is, you know, one of the few categories of work where your appearance really does make a difference in some ways. It shouldn't, we wish it didn't, but, um, they equate ratings to not the quality sometimes of the work, but who's delivering it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which you're is right. really a, a problem. Um, mm-hmm. We're seeing some shift in the industry. I think since the Me Too movement, we're seeing more women, for example, anchor primetime and daily and, and morning news, which typically has been reserved for men. Or they get mm-hmm. the one woman, yeah. they're like, okay, we're done. We got the one woman who's going to read the news, but then we got the two male anchors and the, you know, the cast of men that are going to primarily deliver the news. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's so funny that television for as much of, as, uh, uh, how do I say this? We shape culture in television, but it's so antiquated in so many ways. Right. So um, but now I look at shows like insecure, for example, and you have a cast of mostly black, mostly black and brown people. And it's, that's great. Right. And I was always told, Oh, it's hard to shoot you. It's hard to light you. So it's been a constant battle throughout my career. But then I see now like, look, they I read about some special makeup they use to show, you know, to shoot black people in a darker situation. Like there, there are, you're not the problem, you know, the technology is the problem or your inability to adapt or it takes some extra time. I used to have photographers who would say, oh, I don't want to bring out a light. And I'd be like, look, I, I'm, I'd be like, I'm sorry, black, you're lazy. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's what I'd say. I'd say, you know, hi, and I'm not shy to talk about it. I think sometimes people are, and they don't want to say, you know, it's okay. I'm black. Hi, I'm Naka. I'm black. It's okay. You can bring out a light. I need it. It's like, that's okay. Um, and I, I, or don't shoot me in front of a white wall. And then I'd have photographers say, no, I, you know, this is better. And I'd say, no, I, you're not going to be able to see me. I've had, you know, and, and it, it sounds like I'm being vain, but it's also, like you say, it's a visual medium and people have to look at me in order to listen to me. So I will say though, some of the physical appearance part of it is, I always thought I could have more influence in this industry, working behind the scenes now in my role as executive producer. But 
and because, and part of it was that I just got, I did get tired of dealing with, um, fighting for better lighting or trying to, um, you know, fit into a box or just being concerned when I didn't get a job. And I felt like it was purely because they had already cast my role. And I just wanted, I'm not saying I have total control over my career, but I did feel as though for me and for what I wanted to do and the influence I wanted to have in this industry, being behind the scenes was better. Well, you also have a podcast, so you aren't completely behind the scenes. You are yeah. out there shining your light through this podcast, which I'm going to let you describe because I know it's gone through a bit of a, like a rebranding. Yes. So we have, we're reba- <laughs> rebranding and going back to the original brand, <laughs> but I'm going to say here first, Farnoosh, I have always wanted to interview you. So hopefully oh, one day. For sure. Let's make that yes, happen. Yes. We're making, that's why I'm putting it out there on your podcast. So people can say, Farnish, remember that girl? Ask yeah, you. no. <laughs> Keep me accountable. Let's make that happen. Yes. Yes, we will. So um, first, the Boss Bitches podcast started well, almost two years ago. And um, then I, I was telling Farnoosh earlier, I kept getting flagged for inappropriate content or uh, explicit explicit content. But I didn't want people to be turned off because I didn't think it was explicit. It's just that I used the word bitch. So I changed it to the boss cast. Then I later found out that there is a boss cast. Um, Actually, mine started first for the record. But um, his is about the boss, Bruce Springsteen. And I just think that's so hilarious. And he and I, uh, the host and I have exchanged some emails. And I just think it's so funny right? That's brilliant. The boss cast about Bruce. Yeah. I mean, he, I guess he's, he's multifaceted. So you could definitely dedicate an entire series of episodes to. Oh my God. Totally. I was like, that is such, that's so great. So we're going back to the boss cast and I'm going to have a new episode next week. Yeah. All right. Well, by the way, the B word, I just saw there's a proposed law in Massachusetts that would make it illegal to use the word bitch to accost, annoy, degrade, or demean another person. First of all, I, I love that. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's almost like we're, women are taking back the word. If you think about um, Lizzo, right? Um, I feel like Lizzo has made it okay to say bitch. She's like, you know, she's 100% that bitch. It's like, yes, that's empowering. That's, you know, so I feel okay saying that word, but not in a derogatory way, of course. This is a question from our sponsor, Chase, as we enter December and we're going to be spending a lot of money, uh, maybe. Yeah. Uh, what is one holiday shopping hack or tip that you practice that helps to alleviate some of the financial burnout around the holidays? Okay, so this is a really good question for someone like me because I love giving gifts. Um, and I'm one of six kids, and now my siblings are having kids, so it's kind of getting, ah, crazy. Oh, my God. So, you got to get that spreadsheet out. That's what we had to do in the yes, early yes. days. So we, do, we do spreadsheets. We share... Um, I start a list for my son and my daughter of their wants, and then I send it to the family. So we kind of divide and conquer. The other thing is I have an account that's just for their Christmas gifts, because in the past, I have been that person. You know how they say you rack up credit card debt during the holidays? I think there's always like a study around that time. I used to be that person. I mean, really bad. So now that, you know, with children, I have to be a little bit more um, cognizant of my spending. So I do have an account. And where do you keep the account? Is it a, is it a separate account at a a different bank or how does that work? Yeah, actually, you know what it is. And I hope I don't 
I hope this isn't too confusing, but you know that FSA, do you guys have FSA accounts or any of your listeners might have the flex spending account? Yeah. Yes. Flex spending account. So you have the dependent care flex spending account. I think my, I put like 2000, I think the max for me where I work is $2,000 a year. So I say, I kind of bank that money. I just pretend I don't have it, but you have to use it by the end of the year. So I've already spent way more than $2,000 a year on childcare. So I think we've spent some of it, like, for example, the au pair thing, I had to pay like an upfront fee and all that stuff. So it's usually related to them. And you basically you prove that you paid this amount in childcare, you get the money. So I, I see it growing. I haven't touched it in a few months. So I'm going to use that for present. Santa's going to be very generous this year. Yes, their lists are already made. And, you know, as I, I think your son is a little older than my daughter, but she's almost four. So she gets it. She's our, she has a birthday and Christmas in December. Oh. So, oh boy. I have a lot to, okay. <laughs> I have lots of plans. Good luck for. with that. Good luck with that. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and last but not least, finish this sentence for us. I'm Naka Faison. I'm so money because I am Naka Faison. I am so money because. I don't give up. I don't believe there is anything I can't do. When I was making $22,000 a year, I didn't think that that's where I was going to stop. I don't think this is where I'm going to stop. I hope other people feel the same way. And yeah, I mean, I can make a dollar out of 15 cents. That's what (laughs) immigrants do. Snap, 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 snap. Yes. I love yeah, it. So, Looking forward yeah. to continuing this conversation on your podcast next. As everybody remind Farnoosh, don't forget about the little people. <laughs> oh my gosh, no way. <laughs> um, you are so big time, Nika. Thank you so much for joining us and I hope you, um, you. have a great holiday. You can connect with Nika on Twitter at newsnaka.com and check out her work at wcbb.com slash chronicle. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And I hope your day is so money. <laughs>